Well, it's the month of August, which means that we are definitely past the point where anybody is talking about New Year's resolutions, right? That's back in January, right? We either given up that first day or first week or first month, you know, or we just never had one to begin with. Uh, I read an article this last week that said 80% of New Year's resolutions are failed by the first week in February, which I think actually is a bit low. I think it's a little hi higher than that. But I know for myself, I've never, I've never had one. I've never kept one, I've never had one. But one time, I knew a guy who did. Just one time. And this guy's name was John. And one day, John looked himself in the mirror on a fateful December, late December, and late in December day, and he said to himself, John, this next year is gonna be different because this next year, we are not gonna drink a single Red Bull. Yeah, big changes, right? And for most of you, you know, if you don't know what Red Bull is, this is just one of the most popular energy drinks on the market. And for most of you, to not drink a Red Bull for a whole year would just be to live exactly as you do right now. It wouldn't be that hard. But for John, it was probably one of the most, the biggest things he could have given up. Like he really only liked like three things in life, his family, his dog, and of course Red Bull. So for him to give up one of the big three was a big deal. In fact, he had an entire mini fridge in his room just full of Red Bull. And for him to go 365 days without a single one of these was quite the task for Johnny Boy. All right, and so for a few months, he was going strong. Uh, he was keeping his news resolution. He was avoiding Red Bull at all costs. He put water in his fridge. He was semi-healthy for a few months. We were applauding him. We're, we're, we're glad for him. Until it got to the month of December. And he was still resolved to finish out the year, no Red Bull, when one of his other friends decided that he wanted to make John earn this just a little bit extra, right? He just wanted to make him work a little bit harder. And so whenever he would hang out with John, he just so happened to bring a few Red Bulls with him and drink them and talk about the golden color and delicious flavor and how much energy he had. You know, all of these things that went along with it, uh, pretty much tempting John at every second. And I realized in this moment, right, like, what is he doing? Like, does he want him to fail. Does he want him to fail? And, and, and as I was thinking about that, it just seems like sometimes when the people around us are experiencing success, it makes us jealous, right? Because John wanted to be good at one thing this year. He, wanted, he picked one thing, no Red Bull, and he decided that was the one thing. And he began to succeed at this New Year's resolution this friend was like, you know what? I could have done something big this year, right? I could have made a resolution. I could have done something, but I didn't. I didn't. And sometimes when those people succeed around us, it makes us jealous, not in resolutions only, but in everything, uh, because we want the glory that comes with success. We want the fame, we want the spotlight, right? We, we, we like that, we like when people know that we're good at things. And I'm not talking like just, like just about uh, like things like the Olympics. Like we were all cheering on American athletes, right? They're going for the gold medal. We love the success of those people that are representing our country, I think, because we can identify with those people. But I'm talking about our closest and immediate peers, the people that we actually compare ourselves to. Because I'm not comparing myself to LeBron James, right? 
Because on a lot of levels, he's gonna win. And on a few levels, I might win. But on a lot of levels, he's gonna win. He's gonna outshow me. And I don't like that comparison. But I definitely might compare myself to the people around me who are succeeding. And when those people succeed, it makes us jealous. But also, it can bring shame. Why? Because it shows us that we could have been there as well. That if we just kept the promises that we made, that we kept the goals that we made for ourselves, that we'd also be a success. But we failed at our own goals. And we broke our own promises. So why do I tell you this? Well, success in life is not as common as we think. In fact, failure is just as common, if not more common, in our experience. Yet we live in an American culture and society in which success is so idolized that it becomes our expectation in everything. No little kid grows up expecting to fail, right? They wanna be astronauts, they wanna be presidents, they wanna big, be big names, they wanna have these big careers. They don't wanna be failure, right? but it becomes our expectation for pretty much everything. Success becomes our expectation. For example, I don't know if you've had the chance to go to uh, Top Golf up on the way to Pittsburgh, but uh, essentially Top Golf is this like fun driving range, right? They have like targets you like kind of hit at them. Uh, they have some like good food. It's a good time, you know, if, if you like to enjoy yourself. And so uh, it's nice, but every time I go, there's always people in our group that have never played golf ever in their life. And they have this expectation that they can just pick up a golf club and swing it and hit that ball in a way that makes it go straight and far and perfect. But golf is one of those sports that some people have spent their entire life being bad at. And so for people to just expect to be successful at this thing is just crazy. And yet, they start to get frustrated when the ball goes completely to the right and hits the person next to them, right? That's frustrating for a lot of reasons. But uh, the point is that our expectation is always to succeed. So much so that when we fail, I mean, it really, really messes us up. It disorients us, right? And it brings these lingering feelings of shame and disappointment. But the truth is that we all fail. And that we've all experienced the shame and the disappointment that comes with failure. And we know that this shame has the effect of keeping us from trying again. Keeping us from doing the things that we were made to do. I mean, there's, there's a sign outside of the entrances to roller coasters. And the sign says, you must be this tall to ride. So if you're under this height, Right, if you're a kid, you can't ride the roller coaster, something about safety or whatever, right? But as a kid, you only see this as a bar to fun, right? You just see this horrifying sign, you're like, ah, just keeping me away from doing the things I was made to do, ride that roller coaster. And I think in our own lives, we put up similar kind of sign. And it says, you must be this successful if you wanna be worth anything, or you must be this attractive if you want to be worth anything, or you must be this wealthy, you must be this smart, and yet we can't ever seem to make it that far. We can't seem to make it that far, and we feel the shame, and we walk around trapped in defeat, and we carry that failure with us wherever we go, and it haunts us. 
So maybe as a student, uh, you failed a test, or maybe even worse, you failed a class, and you felt like you weren't smart enough. And you say, well, you know, who needs pre-calculus anyway? It's a pretty useless subject. Or, or maybe you failed to meet expectations in the workplace, and were let go, and you felt the shame of not being skilled enough. And now it's awkward for you to go to the grocery store, because you might see Ted from accounting at the banana section, and that's just awkward, right? Because he knows you were fired. That can be awkward. Or maybe you've endured a failed relationship, you've been broken up with, experienced a failed marriage, and you felt the shame of rejection, the shame of not being wanted. And you look yourself in the mirror and you say, what's wrong with me? What's wrong? Or maybe it's that you haven't been the parent that you wanted to be, right? You set goals for yourself, but you feel the shame of letting your own kids down, right? And we get to this point where we realize, I'm a failure. And we spiral down in doubt and insecurity, telling yourselves, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy of love. I have no value. And you know what, I, I, I just kinda had enough of this. I, I think it's time for me to quit. Well, maybe you're here this morning because you haven't been able to shake the sin struggles in your life. And maybe you're struggling with addiction, maybe you're struggling with anger or emotional control, or maybe you've even been a believer for a while, but that whole time, for years, you've been struggling with the same sin pattern day after day after day, and when you wake up in the morning, you feel that shame and you just hate yourself for it. You're like, why can't I just get past this? The truth is that we all make promises to ourselves, to other people, to God, and we wanna keep them but we find ourselves breaking these promises and failing to be the people we wanna be. Before I came here to work with college students, I was actually working with high school students. And every summer it was, uh, it was amazing because we'd take a group of about 25 students and we'd go on a mission trip, usually to the Dominican Republic. And it was just an amazing experience, even though it was a lot of hard work. We got to serve together all day long. We got to eat like pretty much every meal together. We spent every waking moment together. We were learning about another culture together. And we started to become so close. And we really felt like we were doing the work of God and we could actually see God moving through our actions. And it was so amazing. And, and I think there's this unique joy that can only be experienced in serving God together. And we were experiencing that joy together. But this trip only lasts for one week, right? So we'd always end the trip with people talking about how they wanted to keep it going when they got back home to Dallas and would make so many well-intentioned promises and I could see the fire in their heart because they wanted to keep this going and they'd say things like, you guys, man, you've become my best friends and I love what we have going here and I wanna keep it going when we're back in Dallas. Or maybe even when it was like, I love to serve the people and the community, and we go back to Dallas, I really want to find out the needs of the churches, of the needy, the broken people in our city, and I wanna serve them, and I want you guys to join with me on that. Or maybe it was even, hey, next year, we did not know uh, any Spanish when we were here, so next year, we're finally gonna learn Spanish, and maybe we're finally gonna get past that first lesson in Duolingo, and I think we can do it if we just all back together. But after the week was over, unfortunately, all these students 
would go back to their routine, go back to their everyday lives. And for a lot of them, that meant going back to the same addictions, the same sin that was there before they left. And unfortunately, even though the flesh was willing, spirit, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And they broke a lot of these promises. And it was so heartbreaking to see the kids that had the best trip experience go back to those same addictions and feel that shame and feel like they weren't good enough to come back. So what does God think of you when you're a failure? Well, today we're talking about the fact that we can actually get past the shame of our failure and that God offers us freedom from our shame. He wants to help us get past it and give us new purpose. We've been in this series called Messed Up. It's essentially a series about some of the biggest names in the Bible. And though these people were close to God, even though they walked with God, most of them failed in big ways. But God is faithful to bring him back. And so if you've ever read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you might have read about this guy named Peter. And we're talking about Peter today. Uh, his full name, Simon Peter, was one of Jesus' earliest and first disciples. When Jesus found Peter, Peter was a fisherman. He was on a fishing boat, and Jesus called him to follow him. And immediately, Scripture says that Peter drops his nets, and he leaves that way of life behind, and he follows after Jesus. Right, he shows us this amazing response to, to, to Christ and faith. And Peter becomes one of Jesus' closest relationships on earth, one of his closest discipleship, disciples. He goes with him pretty much anywhere. But we also see that Peter is all heart, right? Kind of all heart, half mind, right? He's the kind of guy he has no problem just blurting out whatever he's thinking. Right, he has no filter for the words that are thought through his mind. There's no filter, there's just everything up here is out here, right, it's just out there. And I think we know a lot of people like this, right? Maybe we are that person. But this is Peter, he's passionate, he's bold, but he's not always on target, right? He's not always on target. For example, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter eight, Jesus is sitting around with his disciples and he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, and he's so excited, he shouts out, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And it shows this incredible understanding that Peter knows that Jesus is not just a teacher, he's not just a prophet, but he is the Messiah, he's the Christ, he is the person that God promised he would send Israel to save them. And Peter shows this understanding, and he gets it. And it it marks this turning point in the Gospel of Mark for the disciples, for this is the first time they recognize Jesus to be the Messiah, is the first time they realize who he is and what his mission is. But in the next breath, Jesus responds and is like, you get it, that's great. Now the next step is that we are going to Jerusalem and when I get there, I'm gonna be arrested, I'm gonna be tortured, and I'm gonna be killed by the religious leaders there. And Peter says, whoa, 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 Jesus, you're talking crazy. I mean, I just said you're the Christ. I just said you're the Messiah. The Messiah is not supposed to die, right? We just talked about this. Jesus responds, he says, get behind me, Satan. 
because you don't understand the things of God. You don't know what God has planned for me. And this is what God has planned for me. So Peter starts off strong, but then kind of screws it up. Then fast forward to the night Jesus was betrayed and we see Peter's biggest failure. We see in Matthew 26 and other gospels, it says that Jesus is with his disciples. He knows what's about to go down. He knows he's going to the cross in in a matter of hours. And so he tells his disciples that tonight, hey, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of everything that's gonna go down, you guys are all gonna desert me. You're all gonna fall away. You're all gonna leave me. And these guys are just kind of shocked, right? They've been following Jesus for like three years. They've seen so much, experienced so much with him. They've seen miracles. They've seen healings. They've seen demons cast out. And so they're like, what? Like, we've been with you through this whole thing. And we're just gonna leave you? And then Peter answers and he responds. He's like, Jesus, there's no way I'm backing down. There's no way I'm leaving you. There is absolutely zero way. I mean, I'm, I'm so in this relationship. I am so for you that I'm willing to die for you if the need comes. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. And Jesus responds back to Peter and says, you know, actually, before the rooster crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times. Right? He's essentially saying, like, it's late night, right? it's getting really late at night, and he's saying, in just a matter of hours, a rooster's gonna crow, and you will have denied me, not just once, but three times. And in Jewish culture, whenever they wanted to emphasize something to the maximal amount, they would repeat it three times. That's why we read throughout scripture that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What that means is that God is the holiest of holies. He's the maximum amount of holy. So for Peter to reject Jesus three times is the maximum amount of rejection possible. And this is a gut check for Peter because Jesus is never wrong. Well, a little while later, the religious leaders come with armed soldiers to arrest Jesus in the garden. And Peter sees what's about to go down and he thinks to himself, there's no way I'm gonna let this happen. And he kind of has this Rambo moment where he's seeing red and he takes out the sword and he sees a guy and he kind of lunges at him and he kind of just gets his ear. And I think this is just like a little bit funny because it's like, I mean, I know he's not a trained soldier. He's just a fisherman, but he kind of just like swings at a guy and just kind of nicks his ear off. It's like, oh, Jesus stops this moment, heals the guy's ear, and it stuns Peter when the religious leaders arrest Jesus and they take him to court. And all the other disciples run and hide except John and Peter who follow Jesus at a distance but are afraid to get too close. So when they come to the courtyard outside Jesus' trial, uh, the disciple John actually gets to go inside because he knows a guy on the inside, right? It's one of those situations where it's not about what you know, it's about who you know, and he gets to go in, but Peter has to stay outside and is the only disciple of Jesus there in the crowd and he watches and he listens as everyone around him mocks his Christ. Everyone around him demands the death of Jesus. And in this isolation, he breaks. 
And I think this shows us something about the nature of failure, that we're way more likely to fail when we're isolated from a believing community. And as a side note, if you wanna guard yourself from failure and sin, surround yourself with other believers that can point you to God and not with the doubters and the haters because that's exactly who Peter is with right now. And this guy who promised to never leave Jesus, this guy who promised to die for Jesus when the time comes, is encountered by a servant girl who comes up to him and says, I know you, you're one of Jesus' disciples. And in the pressure of the moment, he breaks and says, no, that's not me. I don't know the man. And with just a few words, he denies his Christ. He denies any association with Jesus. And he falls away just like Jesus said he would. And as he moves away from her, someone else encounters him and says, no, like I know for sure you were with Jesus, like I just saw you with him. And says, scripture says that Peter, this time with an oath, says, I do not know the man. Can't even say his name. It's denial number two. And so he's trying to get away from this guy when someone else comes up to him and says, you were for sure with Jesus. I can tell by your accent, you're from Galilee. That's where Jesus is from. You're clearly one of his disciples. And Peter responds and it says, this time he began to curse and to swear, I do not know the man. Denial number three. And at that exact moment, the rooster crows. And Jesus is led by and makes eye contact with Peter. And the failure and the shame fill Peter's heart. And he knows he's failed his Christ in front of everybody. And he runs out weeping with this shame heavy on his soul. And as Jesus goes to the cross and is crucifying and as he's dying for the sins of the world, Peter's nowhere to be found. And the failure hits Peter in the deepest parts. And I can only imagine he's saying to himself, it's over for me, I failed. Well, three days later, the disciples are together, they're defeated, they're shell-shocked. When Mary comes and she says, hey, I, I, I've come back from visiting Jesus' tomb, but something's going on because Jesus is not there. But this guy in white told me he's gonna come and show himself to us at some point. And then a few days later, they're holed up in a hiding space, afraid, uh, the disciples are afraid that the religious leaders would find them as well. And with the door locked, it says that Jesus just appears to them in the room and says, peace be with you. And he shows them the holes in his hands and his feet and his side, the scars of his crucifixion. And they're overjoyed. And they say, it's true, you're back, you're back. And Jesus says, you know, I can't stay right now, but I want you guys to meet me up in Galilee in a few days. And so Peter and the disciples go to Galilee about the same distance from Jerusalem as Pittsburgh is from Morgantown. And while they're waiting, we can tell that Peter still has the shame of his, his failure on his heart. And he says this to the other disciples, I'm gonna go fishing. And he just kind of goes back to work. Right, he goes back to his former way of life. And we see that Peter tries to distract himself 
from the shame and he fills his time with tasks, right? Because he doesn't wanna deal with the shame that's inside of him because he knows Jesus is coming and that he's probably going to have to have a conversation with him about what happened. And I know a lot of people who walk around life carrying around their shame from their failure and they try to drown it out by bouncing around from the busyness of work to the busyness of social life, to the busyness of home life, to every other distraction imaginable just so they don't have to be alone with themselves. Because they know when they get alone, then the shame creeps in and they don't want to deal with it. Well, the other disciples go with Peter and they're not quite sure what to do either. But if you remember before Jesus called some of these guys to be disciples, they were fishermen, professional fishermen. And so the Bible says they fish all night. And though they fished all night and they're professional fishermen, they catch nothing. And I think this is God showing them something, right? It's showing them that there's nothing left for them in that path anymore, that that door is now closed. And I think the same thing happens in our lives as well. When God has something planned for you, life tends to get more complicated, right? Because the door that was always open to you is now closed. And that can be confusing, right? Disorienting, because the door is now closed. But it shows us that God is concerned about you that he's pursuing you, that he's chasing after you. It doesn't show you, it doesn't show us that God is giving up on us, but instead that he's showing us that the way we're living our life is not working. But he's got something better in mind. So the disciples caught nothing. And after a night of failing to catch anything, when day breaks, Jesus is there on the shore. Only they don't recognize him. I don't know if it's because it's uh, too early in the morning, it's just not light enough to recognize him, or just too far away, I'm not sure. But uh, they don't recognize him, and Jesus calls out to them, and uses this word children, or it can be translated little boys, and he yells out to them, little boys, throw your net on the other side of the boat. Right, and this has to be just the most frustrating thing for a professional fisherman who's fished all night, has caught absolutely nothing, you're exhausted and you're tired, and the guy from shore who you don't know says, hey, just throw your net on the other side of the boat. All right, the response would be, you know, if there's not fish on this side of the boat, man, there's no way there's gonna be fish on this side of the boat, right? It's just a few feet away. But instead, they just do it and they throw it over there. Yeah, okay, whatever. They throw it over the other side. And instantly, it's full a fish. And if this miracle sounds familiar, that's because it happens twice in the Gospels, once here in John 21 and once in Luke 5. And in Luke 5, he uses the same miracle when he first calls Peter to follow him. He uses the exact same miracle when he calls Peter into his mission. And here, Jesus uses the same miracle to call him back and specifically targets Peter And Peter recognizes Jesus and he throws himself in the water and he swims to shore. Meanwhile, I love the humor in the book of John, in chapter 21, John's writing, he says, and the other disciples, while Peter was just kind of doing his thing, just rode to shore, right? A hundred yards, it wasn't that hard, all right? And so they get to shore and Jesus has fish waiting on the fire and he provides breakfast for them and after they're done eating, Jesus and Peter go for a walk. And Jesus sets up this moment in John 21 and we read in verse 15, It says, when they had eaten breakfast, 
Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I love it. Jesus calls him kind of by his Hebrew full name, Simon, son of John, right? I don't know if you've ever gotten like in trouble if your mom used your full name, like Benjamin Joseph Biles, get down here right in a second. But as you know, the connotation is that this is a serious moment. We're gonna have a conversation, right? And he says to back to him, yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you and feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And the first time I'm reading this, I'm thinking, is Jesus kind of just messing with him? Like, what's the point of asking him three times if he loves him? Is he being mean, like, oh, are you sure you love me? Because it didn't seem like it the other night. Right, all those denials, remember that? Is that what Jesus is talking about? Is this how God talks to us when we failed? Does God point us back to our failure and says, you know, are you sure? Because what you did the other night does not show any kind of love. No. Instead, here's what Jesus is doing after Peter answers, yes, I love you. Jesus points him forward to the mission and says, then feed my sheep. And what we see is that Jesus is restoring Peter from his failure so that instead of feeling the guilt and the shame from the night in which he denied Jesus three times, he calls him into this relational moment where he tells him three times that he loves him and he restores him. And so he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I love you, you know I love you. And Jesus says, good, because we have a purpose for you, right? I have a purpose for you to feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Great, well then we got stuff to do, right? Do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Well then let's not stay here. Let us move past this failure. So how does God respond when you fail? Does he scream at you? Does he shove your nose in your failure? No, instead he says, the same relationship we've had is still here. I'm still here, so come back to me. Because I have a purpose for you. I have a mission for you. So feed my sheep. Now there's importance to this sheep imagery. And I don't know if you've been around sheep that much, but they're unique in that they have absolutely zero defense mechanisms, right? They got no fangs, they got no claws, they can't fly, they can't run fast, they can't swim, they can't, they just go, that's it, right? That's all they got. It doesn't help them much. And so when wolves come around, I mean, it's an all-you-can-eat buffet, right? It's just a slaughter fest, it's awful. And so these sheep need a shepherd, not just for protection, but also for Direction, and they can't even find their own food. They can't even find water for themselves. They need direction, because they don't know where they're going. And they need someone to lead them. So when Jesus says, feed my sheep, he's talking about the people of the world, the people that are lost without God. And so for us, as we look into our communities, we look at our middle school, our high school, WVU, other colleges, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, everywhere in which people are around us, we see these people, we see these sheep, we see people lost without God. And they need someone to reach out to them and save them. They need us, the people of God, delivering the message of God, that Jesus died, right, for your sins. And if you believe, 
you can be forgiven. Need us, they need us to carry out our mission and not get bogged down with failure. And the message Jesus gives us is this, is that you don't have to be caught in sin and shame anymore. When he says, follow me, he says it just at the moment where we think we're too messed up to be used by God. He says it to Peter. So when we think that we're too messed up to be used by God, Jesus calls us back into our relationship with him. He restores us and gives us purpose. And he does this for Peter to show all of us what it looks like to fail and fail miserably, fail in public, everyone knows about it. But know that there's still restoration, that there's freedom from shame and guilt. So no matter where you are, what you're struggling with, what you're addicted to, God is calling out to you and he wants you to know that he is here to restore you. He wants you back in a relationship with himself and he's waiting. So how will you respond? My hope is that you return to God, experience the freedom, and live out the purpose, the mission he has for you. And pray with me. Father God, we're thankful for the life of Peter and the example of faith he so often is, but also that he, uh, he failed big time and that uh, you redeemed him from that failure. You restored him from that failure and you showed all of us what it looks like that you truly do free us from our shame and our guilt and our life. That you're, you're powerful enough to do that. That you've forgiven us from our sins so surely you can free us from the shame that we're carrying around. And we pray for that freedom. And we pray that you would restore us to relationship with yourself and the joy that we experience in that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.